My name is Kim Weeks, and this is Practicing Well. Doug Keller is like some other guests I brought onto this show. He hews to a lineage with no name. Though, if you had to pin him down or label what he teaches, you might be safe putting him in the Tantra category of lineage. This talk is really different than the talks I've brought in before because it's a heavyweight academic, philosophical, and historical lens on the threads of yoga that have come through history to today that allow us to examine a bit more deeply what yoga lineage is and why it matters. As I see it, Global academia in yoga and the business of yoga are two really different groups that don't have that much in common. One group is part of the canon, reads and writes and publishes and teaches in universities around the world. And the other in yoga studios, which operate for the most part for profit, are doing lots of down dogs and birds of paradise. Doug takes a pretty clear step in the direction of connecting the academic and historical aspects of yoga with what we're doing today. The claim he makes is that Hatha yoga, which is a word that most of us may use in the yoga world and take somewhat for granted because we just hear it all the time, Hatha as an adjective describing yoga, is fundamentally a democratic process that Hatha yoga, when it was introduced in the 15th century in a book called the Hatha yoga Pradipika, which Doug spends a lot of our time in this talk um, describing was attempting to be the new Testament to what can be considered the old Testament in Patanjali's writing of the yoga sutra hundreds and hundreds of years before that book, The Hatha Yoga Pradipika. What Doug attempts to do in our conversation is thread through what the Yoga Sutras were all about and how they are placed in the history of the emergence of yoga into modernity, and also the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which interestingly you'll hear, at least I understood in the talk, are both extra Brahmanical, meaning they both were penned and written and shared outside of the Brahmanical Vedantic tradition, which by the way, is also the tradition and the societal movement, which gave us the caste system. So on the one hand, you'll hear him talk about the Yoga Sutra as, Sutras as, as coming from an ascetic, hermetic, and really kind of, well, if anybody's read the sutras, you'll see so many details about how you can remove yourself from the world and go into your body and into, you know, pure unvarnished consciousness with no real, you know, chitta vrittis, in other words, thoughts. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika is the first book that offers actually poses to do to be in the body that enable you to move your way toward meditation, toward becoming still. There's a way of working with the body toward the place of becoming still. So this is a Cliff's Notes version of a longer series that Doug offers on uh, Yoga International. 
And again, this is Doug Keller, longtime yoga practitioner, philosopher, and academic who is addressing more clarity about the idea of lineage in its relationship to yoga, why we even bother talking about lineage, because lineage is a claim to authority. And we need to understand basically the claim to what we can learn versus the claim to needing to submit to just one teacher or just one lineage and what Hatha yoga as it has emerged into modernity really is and how to define it. Welcome all of you who have joined us live today, as well as uh, the many others I'm welcoming on recording or through the podcast in our re-release that will be infusing our conversation today on what yoga is and why it matters. And I'm going to let you, Doug, please just outline the three things you'd like to talk about today so that we can all kind of settle in and get um, kind of accustomed and used to how it is we're going to talk today. One of the things that struck me the most in my classes with you was one of the first things you said was, I can't believe you drive all this way to come study with me. And I was, it's the kind of thing that I say to my students too, because it sort of opens up the question of who am I as a teacher and what authority am I, can I establish or what authority do I have to draw you to me? At least that's how I heard it even then. And today it still sticks with me because I find it such an interesting way that you approach teaching and approach the pedagogy of yoga. So welcome. I'm so glad you're here and tell us everything you think. (laughs) Thank you, Cam. Hi. Yeah, actually, I remember last time we got together was at the very beginning of the pandemic, and I was coming down to D.C. to do a, a podcast, a radio podcast, where the owners, the whole city of D.C. was just absolutely empty, like it was some from some sort of movie or something like that with shops open, you know, to get food here and there. But yeah, it's been quite a ride in between. I also remember... Uh, like with you coming to classes and other people, I've I've had the experience over time, which is kind of like a little bit of experience of lineage because I, I studied with Iyengar teachers and still do online. I take some classes with a teacher I know from the 1990s. And um, when I'm doing workshops, people would come up and they'd say, you know, I, I like your class, but I'm, I, I'm in the Iyengar school, so don't tell anybody I'm here. <laughs> Like it was some kind of, uh, you know, like compromising themselves to do that, which is kind of why it's good to talk about lineages. And like you were saying, I wanted to lay out the basic three points that I wanted to look at today. First is to get more clarity about the idea of lineage in relationship to yoga and particularly keep in mind what is the yoga that we practice? Because most of us coming online and I was looking at the list of styles that she had from the questionnaire, most of us are teaching, are practicing Hatha yoga in some form. Some of those, uh, some of those on the list tended to be a little bit more meditation oriented, but by and large, we're talking about people who practice Hatha yoga. Uh, And that's something to keep in mind because we are dealing with different kinds of yoga. I mean, yoga as a general term is qualified by what comes before it. And so when you say I teach Hatha yoga, you're doing Hatha, you're doing yoga uh, through the practices of Hatha. If you're doing Yana yoga, you're practicing yoga through the practices of knowledge or coming to know, karma yoga, and so on and so forth. Uh, And so we want to look at the lineage that really speaks to the practice that we're doing. And like I said, get some clarity about what we mean about lineage. Uh, second point, 
the reason why we even talk about lineage, why we bother to go into it, is that lineage is also a claim to authority. And that's been an interesting conversation throughout the history of yoga, uh, people making different claims to authority over the uh, primacy of the teachings that they follow over other forms. So I'm going to get a little bit into the history of that. And then the third point is, again, coming back, if we're a practitioner of Hatha Yoga, uh, what aspects of lineage are really appropriate to the yoga that we're practicing? And I would actually say that once we understand how the Hatha Yoga tradition developed, it was much more of a democratized form of yoga, uh, even in the way that when I was watching the talk with Richard and Barbara this morning, um, this sense that you go to different teachers to learn different things and incorporate that into your own practice. And that was actually um, the emphasis upon learning in Hatha Yoga, the sort of democratization that I talked about, just something I'll refer back to later. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is written in 1450, is the first text to really pull together the idea of Hatha Yoga practice and turn it into a simple, straightforward, systematized practice that anybody could do that included all of the different parts of practicing Hatha Yoga. That text drew upon as many as 20 other texts that preceded it, putting it all together into a comprehensive approach to yoga, which became very popular because, first of all, it was very accessible. It found the kind of sponsorship that allowed the text to be printed so people had access to them. And also many of the barriers to yoga practice that preceded this were taken down. There was not a distinction according to caste or sex or even religion or sect that would bar you from the practice of Hatha Yoga. Um, actually, I'll put this up on the screen right now uh, as kind of a guiding statement. And this came from a text called the Dharatraya Yoga Shastra, which, was, which preceded the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and was the first, was the first text to actually um, start to systematize the idea of Hatha Yoga practice, but not in the way that uh, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika ultimately did. The Dadashtraya Yoga Shastra was written from a certain perspective, uh, an ascetic perspective, but nevertheless represented a, core, a kind of mission statement about what the originators of Hatha Yoga, the first practitioners, wanted it to be. And in this statement in the Dadashtraya Yoga Shastra, it says, whether you're a Brahmin, an ascetic, a Buddhist, a skull bearer, and these are the um, these are the ascetics, the Kapalavratas, who are, we see them in India today, walking around carrying a skull as their begging bowl. So the skull bearers represented uh, the tantric ascetics over time. A skull bearer or materialist, meaning uh, actually people that didn't believe in any spiritual reality and only believed in physical reality. Whether you're any of these, one who is wise who has confidence in the teachings of Hatha and Raja Yoga and is devoted to the practice of yoga will always obtain success in all things. And so the basic mission statement is this is meant to be non-sectarian. And the texts that proceeded from this, starting with uh, this one and then going into Hatha Yoga Pradipika in particular, 
tried to step away, strip away many of the sort of um, sectarian labels that otherwise accompanied yoga teaching, terminology like the gods of Hinduism or other things like that. Um, there's even a mention in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika of the chakras, of course, but that text does not commit to any particular system of chakras because there are a number of possible systems of chakras at the time. More, it was presenting this as a path of practice, and the point of making it non-sectarian was to remove barriers from practice, so nobody was excluded from doing the practice. And what's also the second point to take out of that quote is, notice it doesn't say one who has confidence in their guru or in their lineage, it's rather confidence in the teachings of yoga and devoted to the practice of yoga, not devoted to a particular spiritual path or a particular spiritual teacher, which is not to say that they did not have teachers. The Nata tradition that we'll talk about does, and that's kind of the predecessor to its development into Hatha Yoga. Um, but it was really less about a lineage and it was more about a set of teachings and a set of practices. And if you had faith in following the practice, it says you will obtain success in all things. And in saying that, at least in the case of Dattatreya, he's not promising samadhi or liberation. He's promising empowerment and success in what you seek. It will take you forward. And of course, if you set your sights the highest, if you believe in karma and reincarnation that are looking for liberation, then you will obtain success in that. If you're looking for a fulfilling life, a complete life, you will, you will be empowered to live your life more fully through this practice. So it's an interesting statement about the purpose of this form of yoga, hatha yoga, which does not exclude the goals of the yogas that came before it, does not exclude the goals of samadhi or liberation or the goals that you find, for instance, in Buddhism. It's simply saying this is a practice that empowers you. And so it kind of leaves open to you the purpose that you want to seek or how far you want to go with your yoga. But it's also detaching a bit from the idea of lineage, though it doesn't exclude the possibility of teachers, if that makes sense. It does. And I have a couple of questions. I want to flow in a question from the Q&A, which is a simple question. Who was Dattatreya? And <laughs> I, I, I want to, I'd like to footnote that or append that question with a couple of my own. First of all, can you talk a little bit about Raja Yoga, number one? Number two, I'm were the other 20 texts that the Hatha Yoga Pradipika pulled on, were they, were they sectarian and or is it important to talk about any of them? Are there a couple of highlights of those texts um, to mention? And the sort of final thing, which still goes back to who was Donatreya, is you did a great job kind of outlining the uh, kind of information highway or information, you know, set of roads that uh, paved the way for the distribution of the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. I mean, it was right around the time of Gutenberg, uh, not too long after, about 100 years or so. And so one can see how that would be a more mass produced item. But why? And why did, you know, Dottatreya want to do it? And, uh, and again, who was he? Yeah, who was thank you. The, 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 
Yeah, I can bring some clarity into this. Um, let's start with the Hatha Yoga Pradipika itself and how I said it drew upon 20 different texts. Uh, some of the texts, some of the early texts didn't even use the term Hatha. Uh, some of the early texts referred to it as the yoga of the pot, where the pot refers to the body, the physical body. And so that it's the practice that you do within the physical body itself. And so the term Hatha comes in, uh, many of these texts didn't even mention the term. Now, in the Pradipika, uh, some of these texts, they can be identified from uh, the more Tantra lineage. Uh, the Shiva Samhita is one example. I'll, I'll have a little timeline that I'll show a little bit later. don't want to do it quite now because it will confuse things. Uh, so there are a number. The Shiva Samhita stayed, stayed more sectarian. It used more Tantric language of Shiva that sort of thing. Hatha Yoga Pradipika, not so much. But there are two main streams that feed into the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which leads to some confusion in reading the text, in the terminology. The first stream is represented by Dattatreya, and it's a, it's basically, if you want to call it, it's a lineage, or it's, it's more a tradition of asceticism. It goes way back. Uh, to the time of the uh, of the Upanishads and beyond that. And so these are people who performed ascetic practices, uh, including celibacy, as their yoga. And the approach was very physicalistic. These are also called the Munis, uh, Dasnami, or Sannyasis. Uh, Dharatreya was a particular sage who was summarizing many of these ideas and kind of giving his text as a compendium of ideas about Hatha Yoga practice without necessarily committing to any in particular. So let's just say he represents an ascetic tradition whose practices are very physicalistic. And how you find that appearing in a Hatha Yoga Pradipika is uh, when you find the tar terminology of practicing the bandhas to raise the bindu. And the bindu is a term, it, it means a point of light, it's sort of like the bindi in the forehead. It means a point of light, but to these people, it literally meant the sexual fluid or the essence of your sexual fluid. So it's most often translated as semen, which makes the women wonder where they fit into this whole thing, uh, but also is speaking more of the essence of the fluid. So for women, it was called rajas. But in any case, this physical fluid in the body was treated as a pure form of ojas, as it's described from Ayurveda, that you want to maintain and not waste because if you can raise it up in the body physically through actual hydraulic processes of the bandhas, that fluid can go up into the brain, permeate the brain, and then bring you into states of samadhi. So it's a very physicalistic interpretation, very firmly grounded upon celibacy as a necessity for maintaining this fluid. That's one stream. The other stream is more tantric. This first stream was not so much tantric. The second one was, and it's represented by the Natha yogis, spelled N-A-T-H-A. And it began with Matsyendranath, and then three centuries later, Gurakshanath came, and Gurakshanath is treated as the successor to Matsyendranath, though, as I said, these two people were separated by 300 years. So it's not exactly they sat down with each other and learned from each other. Um, what happens from Matsyendranath to Gurakshanath in particular 
is first of all, a reformation of many of the ideas about Tantra, which first of all, included eliminating the necessity of initiation from a guru, because within the Nata tradition leading up to that time, your membership in the Nata tradition or your being part of the Nata tradition and part of that lineage meant you received a specific initiation from a guru, which over the course of your life as you got older, brought you to the point where you were treated as capable of initiating others. And it's interesting that it it also sort of backtracks. So the, the disciple actually reached the point where the disciple was uh, in a position to perform the funeral rites for his guru. And that's sort of like an inverse rite of passage. And within this, it's actually possible to claim a number of gurus along the way. It's not simply one guru. But in any case, what happens with Hatha Yoga as this moment with Garakshanath is they leave aside the necessity of initiation from a guru, which should, should come as a relief to a lot of you because now you don't have to run to India to try to find a guru to do Hatha Yoga. Um, and so this makes the practices available where otherwise you would not be taught the practices until you receive that initiation and agreed to follow the guru's word in that sense. Now, what also comes with the Nathi yogis is the opposite of that physical, physicalistic approach of the Dasnamis, where your progress in yoga is not through the physicalistic practice of bandhas to raise this fluid, the bindu, rather it's through visualization of the rising of the kundalini, visualization of the chakras as the tools for facilitating this experience and in the beginning, chakras were not taken literally. They were not saying that there's some astral flower sitting in your heart somewhere. It's the tool of focusing upon and visualizing the chakra mm -hmm. through the use of your imagination that you actually facilitate a very real experience coming up inside. And so there's no, there is a practice of bandha for the sake of pranayama, but it's not in the physicalistic sense of raising the bindu. So if you try to read the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, without any sense of background to it, you get very confused because here they talk about the bindu and make a big deal about celibacy. And there they're talking about the Kundalini and the chakras, and it doesn't seem to emphasize celibacy quite so much. And you're kind of whipsawed back and forth, like what's going on here. Uh, part of the problem is uh, the person who wrote the Pradipika, his name was Swatmarama, uh, again, was trying to be diplomatic in terms of offering to the tools of practice, which drew upon different traditions while kind of taking away some of the sectarian terminology to make those practices available to you in a simple way so that you could follow them. And then that would bring you to the different goals of yoga through having done that. And, and it's interesting how he titled it because I mean, his was the first book, Light on Yoga, because Hatha Yoga Pradipika literally means the light on right. Hatha Yoga. Right. And in stating what his book was about, he said, I'm coming to shine a light in the darkness of so many doctrines, which is his way of saying there were so many ideas about yoga practice floating around at the time that he's trying to bring some clarity to it because there's a mixture of mantra yoga, laya yoga, where laya has to do with yoga nidra, the chakras, that sort of thing. Uh, hatha as a physical practice. And then you also asked about Raja Yoga. 
And in general, we can say Raja Yoga refers to the yoga of meditation, uh, though it's a rather amorphous term back at that time. It principally refers to how Hatha Yoga practice leads you to the practice of meditation. And that term gets confused later on because the Westerners, especially the Theosophical movement and Madame Blavatsky, as she introduces yoga texts to the West, as they start to get translated, uh, she especially, with, with the help of our Indian scholars working with her, put forth this book called Raja Yoga, which basically treats Patanjali as Raja Yoga, as meditation, though that's not what the Hatha Yogis were talking about in these texts. So you get this conflation of Patanjali with Hatha Yoga ideas with Raja Yoga and all gets lumped together. And we're all horribly confused about Raja Yoga at this point because of it. And largely there wasn't necessarily clarity to begin with about Raja Yoga, though it was a possible path. I have a comment and a question of my own, actually. It, it keeps striking me that the Hatha Yoga Pradipika published published, you know, when it was, is kind of, I mean, this might be um, a little provocative, but Lutheran. I mean, it seems to me that it's a, a text that's saying, hey, you've got this all inside of you. You can practice these things. These are you. I mean, maybe without the sort of hostility, I guess, or the, the sort of revolutionary, or maybe it was revolutionary. So that's just a comment that I have, a question that, see if you have any thoughts on that. And the second question or the question I have is given if Hatha Yoga and Raja Yoga were both, as I understand you to be saying, equally represented in the Pradipika, I mean, it is the title is Hatha Yoga. Is that why yeah. we practice Hatha Yoga today? Like, why don't we practice, you know, Raja Yoga or Laya yoga, we do well. There's been a lot of Laya yoga since the since COVID. Don't you see all the Nidra classes? Well, yeah. there's so many, yeah. and that's part of parcel of it. And maybe this uh, this is time to put up the timeline here because it um, helps to clarify it to some degree. Yeah, so this gives you a kind of timeline of how the the text developed. So you have Garakshanath goes back to the 12th century. Matsyendra was about 9th century. Um, and he's Graksha Nath, along with Matsyendra Nath, is part of the Natha tradition, which is Shaivite. This is extra Vedic. Uh, in other words, it doesn't have anything to do with Vedic philosophy or the Brahmins. It's tantric as set apart from it. Uh, and these are Nathas who are practicing Laya Yoga, which is, again, very much related to Yoga Nidra and the deeper states of meditation beyond simply what you achieve in seated meditation. Uh, and part of what Garakshanath was doing was reforming um, the form of Tantra that was still present at the time of Matsyendra, which included a lot of transgressive practices. And maybe I'll stop this share for just a moment. I'll get back to it for a moment. One of the things that we need to understand about Tantra and the logic behind Tantra, which is not entirely clear to people, is this transgressive act, uh, aspect of Tantra. Tantra is primarily ritualistic in its original form. It, it has to do with how you perform spiritual rituals in order to have spiritual experiences. Uh, and this is as 
over against the sort of rituals that you find in Vedic culture with yagna. They have their own set of ritual and Vedic culture had its own idea about how the rituals are meant to be performed, which were performed by Brahmins. Uh, and this was very mediated. The Brahmins were the mediators between you and the deity being propitiated through the yagnas. And tantric practices uh, became more unmediated in the sense of like you're saying, they're saying the experience is right there within you. It's not, the divine is not out there somewhere to be propitiated through yagnas through the medium of fire. The divine is present within you and also in nature all around you. And you're meant to have a direct experience, a direct unmediated experience of that. So tantric ritual is seeking more mystical or direct experiences in that sense. Now, along with this came a critique that was instituted by the tantrics, which, which was to point out that in Vedic culture, which we can actually call Brahmanism because it was, as it developed, it was the Brahmins, the priests of Vedic culture, who set forth uh, ideas about society and culture and ethics and so on, everything that comported with the essential ritualism of the Vedas themselves. The Vedas are religious texts um, which are basically setting forth the rituals that define the Vedic religion, yagna. And then the order of society was built around that, particularly the social order based upon the legend of Purusha, where everybody has a place in society, everybody has a dharma to perform according to their abilities. And of course, at the top of the pyramid are the Brahmins, because they're like the brain or the mouth speaking the truth of the Vedas and regulating society according to this Vedic wisdom. And in that position, the leaders were one step below that, the kshatriyas, they ran society, but with the guidance of the Brahmins, which is an important and interesting thing to keep in mind. So there's always a close relationship between the Brahmins and the political order because the Brahmins are the advisors to the political organ order. And by the way, Vedic religion is not a salvific religion. In other words, they don't go and proselytize to others. Within the Vedic religion, they said, this is our religion. This is our path that works for us. Whatever you want to do out there is fine, but this is part of Aryan culture. And the term Aryan uh, is not a term having to do with race. The term Aryan at that time had to do with the culture. You had a shared culture of language, of religious practices, of social order and customs of burial, everything that defines a distinct culture, that's the Aryan culture. And it also referred to your form of religious practice and also the sorts of ethics or moral order that you follow. Now, at the top of this pyramid, as directing not only religious practice, but the ideas of society, the Brahmins were in charge of maintaining the purity of the practices. And the purity was through a direct line of transmission. So within Brahmin culture, this is a family culture. Uh, not everyone who's born a Brahmin necessarily becomes a Brahmin priest, but in general, the father would teach the Vedas to the son as an oral tradition, and the son would carry it on. And so the Brahmins are the living instantiation of the vibration of, of Brahman, of the vibration of the mantras. And so we think of mantras as being written down, but actually they're the living vibration of the Brahmins themselves as the very voice 
of God or the divine, having memorized and internalized the Vedic mantras so deeply that they're kind of like the living presence of that. Now, in performing the rituals, they're in charge of maintaining purity. So everything involved in the ritual has to be pure enough to be an, uh, a, a proper offering to the divine so that the yagnas would be effective. And this kind of spills over into society where the Brahmins are the arbiters of spiritual purity in general. Uh, I spent seven years in India uh, on staff at the ashram, and I got to participate in uh, some of the yagnas there. The ashram would invite in Brahmins from all over India, sometimes 15, 20 Brahmins. And they're really sweet people. I like spending time with them. And I got sort of like uh, temporarily installed as a temporary Brahmin just so I could participate in the ceremonies, helping them with stuff. So I got my honorary Brahmin spray, string and they did the little you know, pujas that made me sufficiently pure to participate in doing these things. And they're like, remember, this is temporary. <laughs> You're not a Brahmin, you're just a temporary Brahmin. But the thing was, they were bestowing purity not only on the people involved, but on all of the instruments of practice. Whatever was offered had to be transformed from its mundane uh, material form into something quasi-spiritual as an offering. Uh, and the ethics that were imposed upon society in the form of Dharma, how your Dharma was described as an individual was relative to your caste, was relative to your position in society, and you maintain the purity of your own dharma by being sure that you do not come in contact with what is impure. And this came up in the conversation with, with Richard and, and Barbara, how we have the main teachers of the main lineages that we rec recognize, Krishnamacharya, Iyengar, Patabi Joyce, and then through Krishnamacharya Deskachar, these are all Brahmins. They're, they're born Brahmin. And so they follow the kind of ethics of the Brahmin, which included a sort of unease about teaching yoga to people who were essentially considered untouchable because they weren't properly part of this Vedic order, if that makes sense. Um, and so it does. I have a question. It does make sense, but this kind of intersects, you know, I think with the claim to authority by any of these teachers, if they were keeping to not teaching people in lower castes, then why did they teach us? I mean, aren't we outsiders? Aren't we other? It's a good question. They kind of gave themselves sort of permission to break the rules, especially like they with, did with uh, you as a temporary Brahmin is what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, would they have done that in 12, the 12th century or something? I wonder if certainly I, not that, not back then. I mean, it, it, an interesting story to look up in the Mahabharata is the story of Eklavya, the village boy who wanted to become an archer like Arjuna. And his teacher, the teacher that he sought out, who was the teacher of Arjuna, rejected him because he was of low caste. And the boy went back and set up his own puja of the, of the teacher and did his morning meditation, meditating upon this archery teacher, Dronacharya, and developed these abilities. Uh, and he became actually the rival of Arjuna in his skill, though he had no ambition to become a warrior like Arjuna. He just wanted to fulfill that within himself. And when it came to 
Arjuna, his brothers, and the teacher Dronacharya finding about finding out about this village kid who had attained these abilities in archery that were not appropriate to his station in life. Dronacharya basically took that ability away from him by demanding a dakshina, saying, you need to make an offering to me because you're claiming to have learned this to me. And the offering is, you need to cut off your thumb and offer your thumb to me. And Eclavia willingly did it because he was so devoted to his teacher and all that he gained from his teacher, even though he had no physical contact with the teacher during this whole time. And at the same time, Dronacharya took away from him his one achievement because it was not appropriate to him as a lower caste. So that's a rather dramatic example of how strong that system was back at that time. And I always wonder if the story was included in the Mahabharata partly as a criticism of that very system, because to us it seems wildly unfair. But in any case, so your question is, why did they start teaching? Well, I guess ask them why they opened it up to it. But in any case, the point largely is the sense of how you maintain your spiritual purity by staying in your lane, staying within your dharma, staying within your pla- your caste. And if you did that, the Brahmins would vouchsafe your purity for you because they basically wrote the rules. They wrote the dharma and said, if you follow this dharma appropriate to your station, then you will achieve at least a better life in the next reincarnation where you start to move up the ladder. And the tantric's criticism, which started to appear in the literature after, at and after the time of Patanjali, was, don't you see, first of all, this idea of dharma is a social construct. Where did these ideas of dharma come from? Uh, these are ideas created by the, the Brahmins based upon their concept of the social order and especially their desire to maintain primacy in the social order. And how are these ethical rules um, enforced? It's basically through fear and shame. If you touch an untouchable person or come in contact with them, you basically get their karmic cooties. You're rendered impure by that. And the tantric said, look, it makes no sense. um, This idea that you could take something impure and transform it into what is pure. This idea that you say a few mantras over a common object and all of a sudden it's no longer a common material object, it's a pure spiritual thing temporarily until the, they said either it's pure or it's impure and you can't take an impure thing and turn it into pure. Plus people are trying so hard to kind of toe the line in Vedic society by maintaining their dharma for the sake of their spiritual purity They're motivated, again, by fear, fear of how they'll be reincarnated if they don't follow the rules, a sense of shame, a sense of uh, really tribalism. It was reinforcing a sort of tribalism within the society themselves. And the tantrics are saying all of this is nonsense. And so the idea of transgressive practices meant in a ritualistic way, you would break the rules to get over your concepts your vikalpas about the rules. And so it involves rituals, touching unclean substances like drinking wine and eating meat. And then of course, the biggest taboo is sexuality. 
And so, you know, we have our concept today about tantric sex, which has nothing to do with what they were talking about back then. The Kama Sutra had nothing to do with this either. The Kama Sutra is just, in their culture, is their version of the joy of sex. It was not related to tantric practice. Um, but it was a matter of, in a disciplined and ritualistic way, breaking the taboos so you no longer are limited by concepts be culpas about the taboos. And there was the idea that it's actually through transgression that you make more spiritual progress because you're not held back by these limiting ideas. And that influenced a wide range of practices, including Vajrayana Buddhism. It leaked into Vajrayana as well as other forms. Uh, so by the time of Matsyendranath, as a Nata teacher, he's teaching these ideas about visualizing the Kundalini, so on and so forth, as a path of progress distinct from this physicalistic path, but he's still caught up in these transgressive practices. And Matsyendra himself was uh, said to have been married, so he was not practicing celibacy. And in the legends, and this is where a lot of uh, hagiography comes in, because again, Grakshanath lived 300 years later, but there are stories of him going to Matsyendranath and saying, don't you realize you're making your tantra impure because you're still involved in these transgressive practices? Grakshanath wanted to start to separate from transgressive practice of sexuality and other forms and focus more on the internal evolution of the kundalini as the driver behind your practice or your evolution in hatha yoga. So all of the stuff about tantric sex is essentially intentionally left behind as well as the idea of guru. Um, but we Can need I ask to a quick question that. just to put a pin just to uh, make chronological or remind us of the chronology of this when you talked about the tantrikas um having issues with the practices as laid out in in patanjali by patanjali rather that's when it started yeah i was going to ask if we could do um, we could do this yeah actually it's it's not so much patanjali was basically falling out of favor I'll mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit later. Okay. And you can tell that because fewer and fewer commentaries get written about Patanjali until by the 12th century. This is a period of 500 years or so from the time of Patanjali. Okay. Nobody's writing commentaries about Patanjali anymore, oh, which means spiritually people have moved on. They're talking about Vedanta. They're talking about Bhakti, uh, bringing all of those elements of spiritual practice together. And especially when there's this emphasis upon Bhakti, uh, the question comes up, if through bhakti you can become liberated, if through devotion you can become liberated simply by chanting the name of God, focusing on God, why would you do all the hard work of doing Patanjali's Ashtanga path? It just seems like a lot of really hard ascetic effort when all you have to do is chant the name of God you know, and immerse yourself in Brahman through devotion. So Patanjali becomes in a number of ways, irrelevant to spiritual practice. He only gets revived later in the 19th century coming into the 20th century as a representative of uh, intellectual integrity and yoga philosophy that India wanted to present to the West through their teachers. That's a whole nother topic. But in any case, um, Tantra was not necessarily a direct rejection of Patanjali. It's more seeking a more 
inward turning individual path of direct experience of the divine and rejecting the sort of uh, primacy exerted by the Brahmins over people, asking them to follow their dharma and keep in their lane. And which, which, you're these, say, which you're sort of saying the Brahmins were using the Yoga Sutras and Patanjali's theories. No, Patanjali oh. was Patanjali was apart from the Brahmins. Uh, just to make it clear, around the same time, <laughs> I'll just stop this share again for a second. Because you see me talking. The Bhagavad Gita and Patanjali historically are around the same time in history when they come forth. You never see the Bhagavad Gita mentioned by Patanjali. You never see Patanjali mentioned by the Bhagavad Gita. In the Mahabharata, in which you find the Bhagavad Gita, you do find the eightfold, eightfold path, the Ashtanga path mentioned, but it's attributed to Hiranyagarbha, a legendary teacher, rather than Patanjali. There's no mention of Patanjali. Um, so within the Bhagavad Gita, as one form of yoga being presented, it's very much within Vedic culture. And notice, in the Bhagavad Gita, there is an emphasis upon yoga as stilling the mind. That certainly is there as the goal. Plus, you have the element of bhakti added in, the idea of uniting with Krishna, with the divine, through bhakti. But yoga is defined in terms of action. How is yoga? I mean, there are a number of definitions of yoga given in the first part of the Bhagavad Gita, but we're familiar with doing your dharma without while renouncing the few the fruits of your actions and with devotion. That's an entirely ethical definition of the practice of yoga, with the promise that if you follow your dharma without selfish purpose, renouncing the few fruits, and with devotion, you will achieve yoga through merging with the divine through that state, which includes meditation or that stillness of the mind that comes with this devotion. And so this is an active form of yoga and is defined in terms of ethical principles. Who writes the ethical principles? Who writes the Dharma that we're talking about? The Brahmins do. So if you wanna know what your Dharma is in that society, go ask a Brahmin if you're not clear about it. You knew it from the moment of your birth, this is who you're born as, this is your dharma. And so within that definition of yoga, um, really the ethical path of yoga is socially defined. Does that make sense so far? Patanjali is coming or representing a very different tradition of thought. And we need to understand the evolution of philosophical ideas of yoga in India. The Vedic tradition promulgated by the Brahmins emerges in Western India, the Western part of India. And the Vedic tribes uh, who carried with them first the Rig Veda came from the Northwestern part of India into India, actually from the area that we now know as Iran and, or from that general area. And the term Iran is actually a derivation of Aryan, reflecting the Aryan culture that descended from there. And the term Hindu, is actually a term that the, the British came up with because they couldn't figure out what was going on in India spiritually because you have so many paths going on. I mean, Islam was clear to the British. Indian people, you got Vaishnavism, Shaivism, all these different forms. The British are like, we don't know what you people are doing. So we're just going to call it Hinduism, meaning you're 
your teachings are coming from the Indu Valley. So they're referring primarily to the Vedic culture, the culture of the Aryans, the culture of the Brahmins. And so they settle in the northwest part of India and starting with the, the, the religious rituals of the Vedas. And then that gets developed into a whole ethos of society by the Brahmins. And the Brahmins are defining people's roles in society, their dharmas, so on and so forth. Entirely apart from that, in the eastern part of India, way east coast, if you want to call it that, uh, an area called the Magadha, which eventually comes to be called the Greater Magadha, this is the area in which you have the development of Buddhism. And it's part of an overall spiritual movement. Uh, and there is no contact in the eastern part of India. This is on the basis of um, Sanderson's research, Alexis Sanderson. Even up to the time of Patanjali, the people in this area of India were untouched by Vedic culture. They had no congress with it, though there's emerging that takes place in between that I'll talk about in a moment. Here you have a spiritual culture, which is called the culture of the shramanas as a general term. And the term shramana means one who makes an effort or one who strives spiritually. The shramanas are the ascetics. And the uniting ideas, the ideas that bring the shramanas together are the ideas of karma, and with the idea of karma, the idea of reincarnation. And so from the idea of karma and reincarnation, there is, of course, a concern with the liberation or liberation from the cycle of births. Notice in early Vedic society, even early Upanishads and early parts of the Vedas, there's not a clear idea of karma. There's a sense that when you perform Vedic rituals properly, you will achieve good results through those rituals, but there's not a sense of bad karma or the whole mechanism of karma and transmigration. That's being developed in the Eastern part of India. And of course, the keen interest of the shramanas is they want to escape the round of reincarnation. This includes the Jains and the Jains, uh, Jainism was taught by Mahavira, who was a teacher who lived at about the same time as the Buddha, around the same time. And they shared the same uh, initial emphasis upon uh, asceticism, though, of course, the Buddha modifies it as the middle path. But they also, in general, the Shramanas shared the idea that through knowledge, through coming to know the true self, uh, well, we think of the Purusha uh, as the Purusha or the individual soul, you will achieve freedom from karma because within their thinking, to know something is to become something. So if you fully know yourself as the Purusha or the soul, then you become free from identification with Prakriti or the material world. Of course, these are terms of Samkhya that get adopted by these people. In any case, you have a very different spiritual culture developing in the East concerned with karma and reincarnation. Now, how did these ideas come together? Through a number of factors. First of all, ecological, as the Indu Valley starts to dry up, the Aryan civilization has to start to move eastward to find new, fresh places to live where they can grow crops and prosper. And this takes place over the course of centuries. There's a slow move, move eastward. What propels it is the invasion of Alexander the Great coming down into India 
And in his invasion, he persecutes the Brahmins because the Brahmins, as I said, are closely associated with the political. They order. have the power. They're, yeah. Right. Yeah. They're right. the advisors to the kings. Yeah. And then Alexander comes in and, of course, kills the kings. And the Brahmins either have to cooperate with Alexander or he kills him, kills them. Or they flee Alexander and start to head eastward. Alexander is only in India for two years. Right? He goes on to other exploits after that and soon passes away. But he leaves behind Greek colonies, especially across the northern part of India, that are there for a good 200 years. And particularly settling in the areas settled by the Buddhists that I'll talk about in a moment. And these Greek colonies have an influence upon Buddhist thinking. This is where Buddhism becomes far more intellectual and even more atomistic in their thinking, which is a whole nother topic there, but it influences the development of Buddhist ideas. Alexander comes into India, starts to drive the Brahmins eastward. And then when Alexander departs from India, even though he leaves colonies behind, it leaves an immense power vacuum. Now, in the eastern part of India, along with the Shramana culture, you have the rise of different dynasties of kings who want to expand their territory. And so they're starting to move eastward. And this is how the Magadha, a small area, starts to become the greater Magadha. And they bring with them the Shramana spiritualists, primarily the Jains are emphasized first, but eventually Buddhism achieves ascendancy through these emperors. Alexander departs, there's a power vacuum, and so these dynasties start to rush eastward and conquer the areas where the previous kings have been defeated. So if you watch the map over a period of a few centuries, a couple centuries or less, the map becomes entirely dominated by these dynasties. And a later dynasty is Ashoka, who was a particularly cruel and brutal uh, king or emperor. Uh, eventually, he converts to Buddhism. Maybe he felt guilty or something like that. Um, and because of his patronage, uh, Buddhism becomes an important spiritual path. Meanwhile, the Brahmins, they've gone to the east to escape Alexander. They start to come in contact with the Shramanas moving westward. They start to share ideas or hear ideas like ideas about karma and reincarnations. So you start to see these ideas appearing in the Upanishads, the texts that start to be written. And so karma starts to come more to the forefront. So when we have you know, the four goals of life, dharma, artha, kama, and moksha, the moksha part gets added on later because- Can we translate shamana, those four things for people? Yeah, dharma means following your uh, the ethical principles appropriate to your path. And so uh, to your caste. And so when you follow the Dharma that's appropriate to you, that's your path to fulfillment within this life. Within Vedic culture, to live a hundred years and to experience a righteous life following the path of Dharma, which includes artha or wealth, or in other words, achieving a level of wealth that's appropriate to your mm -hmm. station. With that, you experience kama or pleasure. We're meant to enjoy life. And so within Vedic society, if you achieve a righteous life with an appropriate amount of wealth and the pleasure appropriate to your station, that's a full life. Now, the Vedic culture starts to encounter these shramanas saying, hey, there's this thing called karma, which leads to reincarnation, and you should be paying attention to this. 
then the Brahmins say, well, yeah, well, if we follow the Vedic path, you'll achieve those three goals during your life, plus you'll achieve moksha eventually too, by following Dharma. Liberation. And so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And liberation becomes a concern later in life after you fulfilled your duties to society and raising a family, participating in, in, in society. Then the fourth stage of life your retirement, once you've fulfilled those duties, then that's given over to the sannyasa period of your life where you go into the forest and meditate. Like and Barbara was saying, the forest dweller. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And so through following the four stages of life, you achieve the four goals. But these ideas came from the East. Mm-hmm. And know. and I want to say, just in the interest of time, I want to talk. Yeah. Can, you know, keep talking about this sort of how we got from here, what you're describing to the the claim of lineage in our modern practice of yoga as authority of any kind. Like, and that's sort of why I was asking the question earlier, like if these Brahmin teachers weren't going to teach outside of their caste or did so reluctantly or whatever, like what was, you know, again, <laughs> when there, there's millions of us who in one way or another been, you know, exposed to it. So why? And then, you know, how is the this claim to authority, the third point you wanted to make, which is, you know, how is all of this relevant to our practice of Hatha Yoga? Because mm-hmm. I'm sure, and, and there is a question I want to embed, if we can just get back to yeah. it. it was a, it's a great question about Indra Devi and why we don't hear a lot about her or what we could hear about her. And I want to say to the questioner, I love that question and appreciate it because I'd really like to have, you know, an Indra Devi Devotee, you know, come she in. Had, she had the dedication to to show up on Krishna Bacharya's doorstep until he couldn't do anything but yeah. teach her, and yeah. so that was fascinating there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, you know, we're sort of getting to this claim lineage as claim of authority yeah. from. Okay, so on the claim of authority, first of all, so I've kind of laid out how these mm-hmm. two cultures are coming together and mingling spiritual ideas. The Brahmins have to deal with this. And within Brahmin society, the Vedas are the ultimate authority of spiritual truth. And this is the difference between Shruti and Shmriti. Now, so they're encountering these competing spiritual ideas about karma, reincarnation, spiritual progress, represented by the Jains, as well as the Buddhists. And as a side note here, Patanjali represents that Shramana tradition. The Yamas and Niyamas that Patanjali enumerates for you, uh, Christopher Chapel uh, has pointed out, are much closer to the Jain Yamas and Niyamas. Within Vedic culture, there were actually 10 Yamas and 10 Niyamas, which included some of the Yamas and Niyamas we think about, but also include other more social virtues like compassion, study of the Vedas, charity, the things that you might notice get left out of the ascetic Yamas and Niyamas that we see in Patanjali. Um, and so Patanjali represents, go ahead. Yeah, let's talk about, um, just can we translate Smriti and Shruti for people? Yeah, yeah, actually, um, let me go back and put that on the screen and I can give the context for that. And eventually I'll get, we can finish with that Hatha Yoga thing that I was talking about at the very end to kind of pull it all together um, for you. So let me put it this way. Within Vedic culture, when they had to deal with these competing ideas, one of the six schools of philosophy uh, within 
that culture was called Mimamsa, and it's one of the earliest schools of Indian philosophy, and it sets the foundations for knowledge, what the legitimacy and authority of knowledge. And basically, they're holding that the Vedas are eternal, infallible knowledge, having to do especially with how the religious rituals are meant to be performed. But you basically, Vedic wisdom, or what's contained in the Vedism, Vedas cannot be added to, changed, or modified or replaced by any other forms of human knowing. This is basically infallible knowledge, which is directly communicated to the Brahmins and set forth as the Vedas themselves. And it has to do with this idea of Dharma in general, the knowledge of how things are to be done in ritual and by extension in society itself. And then from that, you get the distinction between Shruti and Shmurti as two forms of knowledge having two forms of authority. Shruti refers to what is heard. Uh, in other words, you know, like John mentioned, you know, the yogi sitting in meditation and hearing these mantras and remembering these mantras, this is direct revealed truth of the mantras of the Vedas uh, that don't need any verification, any further verification, because they're heard or received from a source that transcends or beyond is beyond the human mind. So they're making the assertion, the Vedas have that kind of ultimate authority, which cannot be questioned as revealed truth. Now, Shmurti refers to what is remembered. And Shmurti has to do with, it, with everything we can know through human speech, human thought, human inquiry, it can be based upon the Vedas, but Shmurti refers to our interpretation of the Vedas or basically what we think to be true. So Shmurti has to do with our ideas about spirituality. Shruti is directly revealed spirituality. So in the case of Shmurti, our ideas may be true, but they have to be verified as over against the Vedas, which is something that the Brahmins do. The Brahmins figure out whether it's valid or not because they're the authority on the Vedas themselves. So human thought can have a certain level of authority, but it's never the same status as revealed truth. Now, why do they make this distinction? Well, in part because they're encountering the Buddhists and the Jains, and the Buddhists in, in, in particular is coming from the teachings of the Buddhists, the Buddha is saying, this is my experience through my spiritual path. This is what I know to be true. And this is the fourfold path that I'm offering to you for spiritual progress, which is in competition with what the Brahmins are offering as a spiritual path. And so what do you say about the Buddha? Well, that was his experience. It has a certain level of authority to it, but we can't really accept the authority of the Buddha except by measuring against the Vedas. So the Brahmins maintain their ascendancy over what the Buddha has to say because the Buddha doesn't have the same status. And this is also a kind of safeguard against attempts to go back and rewrite or edit Vedic truths. They want to maintain the integrity of the Vedas as the teachings, plus the authority of the Brahmins as being the primary teachers of those teachings. Um, 
And we find references in the literature to the sages of the Vedas. And, you know, you hear, and I'll talk about this in a moment, in the Puranas, the Mahabharata, the, the literature, you have the sages speaking of Vedic truths, but even their interpretations are regarded as sometimes fallible. So this truth stands outside of history and outside of time and can't be questioned by anybody, even a Buddha, no matter how enlightened that Buddha is. It's just their individual experience that they're talking from. Now, this leads to an interesting conundrum because our knowledge does develop over time and has to meet the changes that take place in culture. How do your teachings evolve in a way that keeps up with the times? Because they're claiming this indisputable, unchangeable truth as located in the Vedas but as society develops, as you have the growth of cities, the growth of trade, the encounter with other cultures, how do Vedic truths keep up with the time? In other words, how do you update the teachings? Because you can't change the Vedas. Well, the way in which they do it is they start to tell stories. And the stories show up in the Puranas. The stories show up in the Mahabharata. And essentially, the stories are of somebody telling a story that they heard from somebody, that they heard from somebody, that they heard from somebody. If you follow it all the way back, if you look at the beginning of the Mahabharata, it starts out with a sage saying, I heard this from so-and-so, and so-and-so heard from so-and-so, and so-and-so heard from so-and-so. That's where you have the lineage of Brahmanical teachings, which ultimately go back to Brahman itself or the source in the Vedas. But through telling the stories, it gets modified and added to over time, especially as these Vedic seers ask questions and come up with answers. So the like Mahabharata- Like a spiritual game of telephone, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. And so the Mahabharata is, is often treated as the fifth Veda, not in the sense that the Mahabharata is revealed truth. The Mahabharata is Shmriti, it's literature, it's storytelling, it's the creation of the human mind, and that includes the Bhagavad Gita, but it still has special authority because it so clearly reveals the deeper layers of meaning contained within the Vedas that have to be teased out by these sages or these teachers in the Mahabharata. So you get a lineage of teachers, like Richard mentioned, you know, pages and pages of the lineage of this person is taught by that person, that person taught by that person, that maintains the integrity of Vedic teachings as they comport themselves over time. So the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita is not a Veda, but it is a Veda. It's a fifth Veda in that, in that sense of being a sort of complete Teaching And again, how is the authority of these teachings maintained? Well, it's by the context. Who told the story and when and who did they hear it from? And the very framing of the story gives it its legitimacy. Often these, these stories take place within an ashram where you sit down with the sage and he starts to tell you these stories of old and uh, it gets the legitimacy from that. Um, and so you've got the lineage of the Brahmins set up this way in the literature as distinct from the lineage of teachings upon which Patanjali is basing much of what he's doing upon the, the ideas from the Shramanas, which included elements of Buddhism, especially the Jains, 
and also elements of Samkhya. Because what Patanjali is doing is he's providing a kind of summary of the yogic tradition as it was developed from a particular perspective, from the perspective of Samkhya and the ideas brought by the shramanas, this idea of the dualism between Purusha and Prakriti and how the goal of yoga through achieving samadhi is to achieve the freedom of Purusha from the influence of Prakriti, ultimately from karma and ultimately from the gunas themselves. In the beginning of second pada, potentially says you can you can practice different kinds of yoga. You can practice karma yoga. So if you do that, you can recite mantras. You can do different practices. And he's kind of alluding to these brahmanical practices. And he also has the proviso, if you're interested in samadhi, you need to listen to this ashtanga path. And then he goes on from there. And samadhi is not a tool. Samadhi is the purpose. Everything is oriented towards achieving samadhi as he describes it in the fourth pada. Even the yamas and niyamas that you follow are not cultural inventions of the Brahmins. He very clearly says you practice yama and niyama to reduce the power of the kleshas. The kleshas are ignorance, egoism, attachment, aversion, and fear, particularly fear of death. All of that is hardwired into us as human beings. And it's these kleshas, ignorance, egoism, attachment, aversion, and fear that motivate us into action. We act in order to reinforce our ego, to get what we're attracted to, to stay away from what we have an aversion to, and also to avoid what we fear in our lives. That promotes the activity, the vrittis of the mind. As long as you're motivated in your actions and thought by these glaciers, the mind will be busy and you will not achieve the peace of Purusha. And so every step of the Ashtanga path in Patanjali, very similar to the Shramanas, are meant to reduce participation in the world, reduce action, reduce even the activity of thought until you finally achieve Samadhi, which is the ultimate freedom, not just from thought, but from the gunas themselves. Because at the end, he says, the gunas depart to their constituent causes because they have nothing to do with you anymore which means you're dead. <laughs> you're not in the body anymore. You're liberated from Prakriti. You're liberated from Purusha. He says, in that state in which the self rests within itself, the knowables are as few, which is a mysterious saying, but basically the material world that we live in right now, there are a lot of things to know. There's all kinds of knowledge to gain because that's knowledge about things in the world. When the Purusha rests within itself, there is nothing to know about the world because you are entirely divorced from that world. You've achieved the yoga, which means separation from the influence of Prakriti, which is the whole logic behind Patanjali, this ascetic logic of the shramanas. Uh, and and it's, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, listening to you summarize the sutras as you do makes a, um, makes it very fraught, the connection between the sutras and the Hatha yoga that we practice today. Yeah. It seems to me that's yeah. the claim you're making. And because, also, yeah. Yeah, to put it simply, Patanjali's Yoga Shastra, and the proper term is Yoga Shastra because it's a whole collection of teachings which involves commentary on Patanjali as well as the sutras. 
um, is a compendium and summary of yoga to date from the perspective of Samkhya at that time. The Hatha Yoga texts appear centuries later, and I've been saying that uh, the one who wrote the Hatha Yoga Pradipika was presenting a compendium or a summary of Hatha practice at that time as it had been developing within tantric circles over centuries for tantric purposes, for the sake, because that is genuinely about union. The rise of the Kundalini is the way in which we merge into the transcendent consciousness, Mm -hmm. which is Shiva. And that's different from what Patanjali was doing. Mm -hmm. In a way, people may not like the comparison, but Patanjali is like Old Testament and Tantra is like New Testament. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Old Testament is a great foundation. I like the Ten Commandments. That all summarizes the tradition at that point in time. Uh, But Jesus was doing something a little bit different. You know, he refers back to the Old Testament and regards what he's doing as a fulfillment of it. But there's a lot of new stuff going on in the New Testament, particularly with regard to Jesus's teachings. And Moses knew nothing about Jesus because he hadn't been born yet. In the same way, Patanjali doesn't, Patanjali knows about yogis going around seeking power or cities. And he talks about that in the third pada. And so that's the emergence of tantrics around the time of Patanjali, Mm. but it had not developed into a philosophy of spiritual practice in the way that we find centuries later with language about the Kundalini, Shiva, Shakti, chakras, all of those things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a premonition of chakras in there, but not really the same thing. So just because I know you're running out of time, I'll finally get back to that one slide. Wait a second, let me... I have to go back for a moment and find the slide for you. Um, just the evolution of Hatha Yoga text because it's relevant to our understanding of how it develops over time. Obviously, we could have spent a couple of days on this instead of, instead of one session. It's I great. This, I hope this hasn't been too all over the place for people. Uh, but to get back to it, now you've got Garakshanath who starts to concress this tantric tradition of hatha practice and along the way while these ideas are developing in different quarters with different groups of practitioners tantric kulas practicing these things you got a period 12th to the 13th century it's during that time this is where the dadatraya yoga shastra appears and this is in that's what i call the sannyasa tradition that it goes back to kapila's legendary figure it's these munis these dasnamis And they tend to emphasize this process of raising the bindu in conjunction with celibacy. And they made a distinction between the practice of mantra yoga, laya yoga, again, yoga nidra, hatha yoga as physical practices, including bandhas, and raja yoga as meditation. In these early texts, including Dattatreya from this ascetic tradition, which kind of has roots in the shramanas, the language does not include any trace of Vedanta. The language tends to be more tantric, and there's not much use of uh, terms from the Vedas or Vedanta. A few centuries later, 1450 AD, you have the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and he borrows ideas of practice from Dattatreya without giving credit to him, because the truth is the Natas and the Dattatreya tradition 
still exist in India today. They've been institutionalized in the sense that there's a clear lineage and a passage of teachings within each, but they don't get along very well. They don't talk to each other. So he was being a little bit uh, diplomatic, as I said here. But what the Pradipika does is bring these separate ideas into a more coherent system of practice, which merges mantra, laya, hatha, and raja into simply hatha practice and raja practice, saying that hatha practice will lead you to raja, and you can't get to raja except without the support of hatha. And by the same token, he says, practicing hatha without proceeding to raja is incomplete. You're just doing physical practice. You haven't fulfilled it through the experience of meditation, which is in raja. And raja, again, is a very vague term at this point. They're dependent upon each other. And so this comprehensive system is called Hatha Yoga, which includes both Hatha and meditation. Now, centuries go on. This gets popular because it's printed, as you're saying. So it's accessible to people. And you can see the tradition involved through, evolved through a sharing of ideas. Uh, Swadmarama borrows ideas from this group, that group. It's like these groups do their practices and they get together to compare notes from time to time. And if they like an idea, they borrow it from another tradition. There's not a lot of emphasis upon intellectual property at this point. There are no footnotes or bibliography to these texts. They're just kind of snowball ideas. You see this happening with asana, where the Pradipika have six, 16 asanas. You get to the Garanda Samhita, you start to have, I think it's like 32 or 36. What's happening as Texts get written over time. The next one, the Garanda Samhita, a uh, couple hundred years later, starts to tone down the tantric elements in, in the sense of any relationship to the more physicalistic aspects of the Bindu. So Vajroli Mudra was, within the earlier ascetic tradition, a practice of literally getting preserving your sexual fluid and using methods to not only recover it, to, but to move it upwards in the body, by the Garanda Samhita, it doesn't have anything to do with reabsorbing or collecting sexual fluid. It's now simply a physical posture. Plus, it starts to incorporate ideas from the Vedic tradition. So within Hatha Yoga, the original Hatha Yoga Pradipika, mantra is reduced down to basically the practice of the breath and the Hamsa mantra. And then the interpretation of the Hamsa mantra develops over time and becomes more Vedantic. And it gets transformed into the understanding that Soham, the Hamsa mantra, is the spontaneous repetition of I am that, the basic statement of Vedanta, the sense of union with Brahman in the experience of the breath itself. And also they start to add in elements of bhakti or devotion that you see from the Vedic tradition. And until you reach the 18th century, there are further yoga Upanishads being written, and some older ones are being rewritten by the Brahmins, which start to incorporate Hatha Yoga and Hatha Yoga practices and claiming those Hatha Yoga practices as essentially Vedantic. Or I see. And, and so that's, I see. Yeah. So today in India, you find people making the claim that yoga belongs to the Vedas, Hatha yoga is rooted in the Vedas, mm -hmm. and you can't practice yoga outside of the Vedas, which historically is simply not true. Right. Um, 
It's certainly not excluded from the Vedas, but there's a kind of appropriation going on here, a sort of cultural appropriation going on. That is fascinating. Yeah, we're, we're going to, yeah, please, we're going to have to end. At the top of yeah. the timeline, you see the Shiva mm-hmm. Samhita yes. is a tantric tradition that yes. kind of rides along independently of all the other stuff oh, that's going on. So you have a lot of different um, threads and currents. And the Shiva Samhita, I've got the book over there. It's it's a great, it's great. I mean, it's yeah. it, it, it's hard to read if you if you look at, read it through the lens of, Hatha yoga is Vedanta, you know, Vedanta, or, you know, or, or like, or the definition of yoga I need to learn or really understand as through uh, the sutras, because I think that's how the majority of, well, I don't think the majority of yoga teachers actually learn that much about any of this anymore. But I yeah. think those well, of us who... Samhitras, Shiva Samhita is very deeply tantric and its language mm-hmm. is tantric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's devoted to yoga as union, mm-hmm. and so it it maintains its tantric flavor, whereas Swatmarama and Hatha Yoga Pradipika mm-hmm. distance himself a little bit mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. But in conclusion, I mean, part of this this discussion of lineage is with the assertion of lineage comes an assertion of authority. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was mentioning and talking to you earlier. It's like I. St- I study with other teachers, but I also keep them a little bit at arm's length because there's what you can learn from the teacher. And there's also the element of the teachers of assertion of authority upon you. And I mentioned how early classes I took with some teachers, you got the sense that their first introduction to you as a student was devoted to showing you who's boss. Mm-hmm. And the practice was kind of designed to break you down until you accepted their authority. And once you accept their authority as a teacher, now we can now we can talk. But it's there's a distinction between what you can learn from a teacher and what kind of authority the teacher is trying to assert upon you. Mm-hmm. And the essence of the Hatha Yoga tradition as it uh, developed early on was to give you a measure of independence from mm-hmm. authority where you had permission and even the encouragement to listen to different teachers, to incorporate ideas from them and take them into the practice for your own personal development and experience. But you did not have to ally yourself with a lineage to the exclusion of other teachers Mm -hmm. or to the exclusion of other lineages. Mm -hmm. So Doug, thanks again. It's so good to see you face to face after we did our silly picture at the beginning of COVID with our six feet distancing at the time. It's if like only we knew. <laughs> yeah, if only if only we knew. <laughs> anyway, take care. I look forward to when I'm back on the East Coast. Hopefully I'll see you. And to everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. Bye bye. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This show was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me, and the music is original music from my former band, Governess. Please share what you liked or wanted to know more about from this podcast. Please take two minutes to review it if you have the chance from wherever you do get your podcasts. Send me an email directly to kim at weekswell.com to start a dialogue about how you practice well and what practicing well looks like in your life. You can follow us on weekswell.com, follow us on weekswell in many different iterations between Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter, and TikTok. You'll find us there, either weeks.well or weeks underscore well. See you next time.